In the final part of our three-part series with New Zealand legend Ken Smith, we find out a lot more about his racing career. I hope you stay with us. You've been racing since 16 years old. You're into the 70s now. It was 17, uh, late 70 we got going. And this year I've done 60 consecutive seasons and this is 61 in January without missing a season. And, you know, back in 87 I had a triple heart bypass. I don't know why, but I had to. And uh, But that didn't stop me. Two months later I was back in the chair at against everybody saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing this now, I shouldn't do it. But anyway, we still did it and we're still right. So you want to do something, you do it in life. What was the impetus? Did you come from a family of races? Well, my father and I, we always messed around with cars and we painted cars and did mechanical work, even when I was going to school. And in those early days, I had to get away from school and take two or three weeks off because I had so many cars, dealers' cars I had to paint and help them. And that was sort of, school meant nothing to me. If you could actually see, and I've got a book that was uh, done for me a couple of years ago, and when well, you need to go and look at the um, the school report, that just bags me and said I was wasting time, talked too much, was useless at school, had no interest, and that was dead wrong. I didn't have interest. I figure then you can go to school all day and learn. You learn what you want to learn. And in those early days, it was hard work. And my father was always, he, he loved cars too. So sort of said, well, we should get a little sports car for you. So we ended up buying a four-day special. And we ran that in some hill climbs and sprints. And then along came Bruce McLaren's Austin Ulster. So, and I went to school with Bruce at uh, secondary school. He was a few classes ahead. I always looked at that car and sometimes he'd drive it to school. And I always thought, geez, I'd love to own that car. We did own it and it's great to have a car like that. Well, I asked Jan McLaren about, you know, how does she feel about that car, the very first racing car of Bruce's, and she's fantastic because thousands and thousands of people see it, not just a few hundred. Well, it's the only non-McLaren in the McLaren yes. factory, and just when it was put in a container, all restored to go to McLaren's when they owned it, they wanted to do a documentary on Bruce at a Mirawai hill climb he raced it at, so Bob McDonald, yes. Bob rung up Ron Dennison and said, look, we need to get that car out, can we run it up the hill, we'll make sure nothing happens to it and, he, and he's convincing that I should drive it because I was the one that owned it after Bruce and uh, so we went up the hill and did a documentary and all that stuff on it which was mind-boggling and I always thought going up the hill the car had such a twist on it through the bends I could feel the, the nose and the cockpit disappearing like this I thought holy hell how did we drive these things you know <laughs> what do you think of motor racing now the motor racing today I know it's it's more it's it's different it's very political today and it's sponsorship orientated in those early days people are friends and you had a lot of fun and you worked your ass out all day and all night to get to a race meeting and when you had some success you were thrilled about it but today if I went out and I was here and I won the Ute race for instance I'd be happy but it wouldn't send me over the moon but yet I still love motor racing and there's a hell of a lot of good people around still it's like when we wander through here and when I wandered through America the amount of people that know me that I n sort of don't know and you say oh yeah I remember you way back and it's, it is good I mean motor racing of course you've got to have a change and the safety aspect is probably the best thing that's ever happened. What about the data world? It, it seems oh, to be less about the driver oh. and what he can feel through the, his bum and more about what the engineer confirms that he felt through his bum. I know. It's, like, I mean, I'm the worst person on data. I could not send a text to you. I can start a phone up, but I cannot even operate a computer. I hate the things. And, and I say to them, when they, even with the TRS on now, we've got to do the data. And I said, look, don't trouble me with all that rubbish. And Brendan Hartley said to me a few years ago when I was doing a TRS run, he, he came and he said, I want to have a look at your data. And I said, Brendan, don't waste my time with that shit. He said, listen, let me have a look. 
and he went through it with me and I had listen, listen, listen. He said, if you stop breaking later than everybody and turning into the corner faster than everybody, he said, you're going in 20 mile an hour faster than I'm going in, but he said, I'll come out 20 mile an hour faster than you. You're too fast in there. Slow down, he said. So I, I listened to all this crap and before I went out, he said, now I want you to listen to what I said. I said, all right, I'll drive and I'll keep remembering what you said. So I remember Daniel Gaunt, he'd won a GP and won a TRS series, and he was about six or seven car lengths ahead of me in a race. I stayed there from start to finish and I thought, geez, I could edge into you. No, no, remember what Brendan said? And I'd pitch at a place I'd break, turn into the corner, wait, 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 one push, instead of giving the throttle a couple of pumps at like a 5,000 and sliding it through the corner. And you know, it worked. And uh, in, in the race, the Grand Prix itself, I think that year I finished seventh and I had the fastest lap up into the last lap and Earl Bamber knocked off me by a whisker. Uh, so what Brendan said was right and that data does work. But when you're not, when you're old fashioned, oh yeah, they go through all this bloody bullshit and they say, now look here, look here. But when I actually see it, and listen to what guys are talking about, they are right. Because a lot of times you can actually be lacking two tenths of a second, so you drive harder and harder each lap. It's not the whole lap you need to drive harder. It might only be one hairpin. And that's where that'll show you. Good everywhere, but the hairpin's no good. So you tidy up there and not try to go too much further past. You so know? How does that translate when you're trying to mentor someone well, in it, a data world? Well, that, I'd leave Tom to do that because he's got the data. <laughs> I was just thinking like uh, Greg Murphy's son, he wanted to do, yeah, Ronan, he wanted to do the 86 scholarship. And we, I had an 86 there and he said to Tom and I, could we, uh, his grandfather said, can we rent it off and just do 20 laps? And I said, you don't have to rent it off me. I'll take the kid out and he can do 20 laps. But it ended up, he ended up going and doing 70 odd laps. And then in the finish, he came in and his time was good, bad, good, bad. It was like this, one good, one bad. So when he came in, we were about to pack up and I said, do you want to do another six laps? I had a brainwave. So what I did, I got a bit of tape and I taped up the dash that said the lap times. He went out there and did four laps, virtually identical. And when he came in, I said, what was the difference? He said, you had the right idea. I was going fast. I saw the clock. Should I go faster next one? So he said it worked. And that's how it does work. I mean, the theory of the same as is all this data, but a little bit different. It was an old-fashioned way of doing it, a piece of tape. So, but it, you know, you get enjoyment out of helping kids like that and, and showing them where they're wrong, where they're right. I mean, I don't know everything, but I think I do sometimes. But it does work if you can give them a bit of guidance. And like Greg said, they won't listen to their father. <laughs> How many cars do you reckon you've driven? I know that I've been past 161 different race cars on raced on a track. So, but I could sit down and probably find a few more of those. <laughs> it's quite a number, but there's a couple of memorable ones, aren't there? Well, the Lola 332 was the greatest thing I ever drove in those early days. It was. I mean, we'd driven a lot of good cars, but when you pick one out, that was the cream. The first time I got out of a small car, because everybody had 5,000s, and I thought, no, nah, I don't want those bloody old things, they're blowing up. So I'll end up just running a, uh, a two-litre car, which used to give them a hurry up. And then I got brave and went to America in 74, and I bought one. First year, I went all right in it. Second year it fired. Bought one. Tell us the one you bought. Come on, whose was it? Well, it was ex Brian Redmond's backup car. Yes. And uh, we went over there to buy. Look, I I had 
20,000 US dollars on me to buy a car, and 20,000 bought you the best car in them days, and that was only like 17.6 New Zealand, we were ahead of the Americans, and we walked through the pits at Laguna, and do you think we could find someone to sell a car? No, no, we our car not for sale, all this. Then someone woke up, these guys are genuine, they have obviously got some money with them, yes. and then they come running. Yeah. But I picked the car I wanted to look at, and, uh, and I thought that Redmond car was so beautiful, so that's how we ended up with that, and we couldn't get it for two races after. Brian Redman won the series with the sister car to That's the one right, he won. yeah. But he used to qualify. When we were there, he qualified the both cars. They got yes. the guy out of the car yeah. and put him in it, and he does four or five laps, got a grid, and then jumps out into his own. In case his brakes down, he's got another one, you know. Yes. They, had a, they had another guy driving it, and he was, he was as mad as a snake. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there is something about New Zealand motorsport, something intrinsically purest. It's just more about the racing. One of the interesting things is that Drivers like Shane Van Gisberg and Scotty McLaughlin and these guys, they didn't aspire to Formula One. They didn't, that wasn't their aim. No. And partially I think it was because of Schumacher's dominance yes. in that period. Because, you know, if you weren't in a Ferrari, you weren't going to win. Kids who go and do go-karts practice their autographs. In Australia, by the age of 12, if you haven't got your autograph down in the pad, you're never going to make it. No, you did right. It's just, hey, hero, it's, yeah, there is, isn't there? It has got a bit bad like that. Even when you watch Formula One today, and Lewis is brilliant, he can pull a number out when he wants to, but what always annoys me with him and Vettel is the sourness of the guys when they get beaten. To be a good winner, you've got to be a good loser. And you should smile like Ricardo does, even when he is down and out, he'll still come back with a smile and, and worry about it later. A remarkable motor racing driver and, well, certainly a remarkable mentor for New Zealand motorsport. That's all we have time for this week on Inside Motorsport. Until next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.